Welcome to Words to Live By, a podcast series hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Each week, we will share some of the wit and wisdom of Ronald Reagan. In essence, Words to Live By, made up of radio addresses and speeches he delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. Well, now that we're into the month of February, when lovers celebrate their devotion to one another, we're going to dedicate this podcast to the Reagans. So first, we'll hear a brief word from the president, and then we'll let Mrs. Reagan explain how she met this fella, in her words, recorded years ago from her autobiography, My Turn. But first, let's start with the president, who spoke about their relationship at a luncheon honoring Nancy at the Republican National Convention in New Orleans in 1988. Let's listen. In fact, I've been thinking for several days about what exactly I wanted to say today, how to put Nancy's role in my life in a perspective for you. But what do you say about someone who gives your life meaning? What do you say about someone who's always there with support and understanding? Someone who makes sacrifices so that your life will be easier and more successful? Well, what you say is that you love that person and treasure her. I, I simply can't imagine the last eight years without Nancy. The presidency wouldn't have been the joy it's been for me without their there beside me. And that second floor living quarters and the White House would have seemed a big and lonely spot without her waiting for me every day at the end of the day. You know, she once said that a president has all kinds of advisors and experts who look after his interests when it comes to foreign policy or the economy or whatever, but no one who looks after the, his needs as a human being. Well, Nancy has done that for me through recuperations and crises. Every president should be so lucky. So then where did it all begin? Well, let's hear Mrs. Reagan tell the story of how they met. I've said it before and I'll say it again. My life didn't really begin until I met Ronnie. And this is how it happened. One evening in the fall of 1949, I was in my apartment reading one of the Hollywood papers when I noticed a name, my name, in a list of communist sympathizers in Hollywood. In those days, I didn't know much about politics, but I knew that my name didn't belong on the list. In New York, I'd also been mistaken for another Nancy Davis and had received her mail and even some of her phone calls. It's not exactly an uncommon name. When I came to Mervyn Leroy with my problem, he had the studio arranged for an item to appear in Luella Parsons' widely read gossip column in The Examiner, pointing out that Nancy Davis, who was listed as a communist sympathizer, was not the actress who was under contract to Metro. Feeling any better, he asked me the next day. Well, a little, I said, but my parents would die if they heard about this. What else can I do? Maybe I should call Ronald Reagan, he said. This might be something the Guild should look into. Now, Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild. I'd seen some of his pictures, and on screen, at least, he seemed nice and good-looking, 
someone I thought I'd like to meet. Mervyn, I said, I think that would be a very good idea. Come to think of it, he said, you two might really hit it off. I'll have Ron call you. Well, I spent that night waiting for the phone to ring. The longer I waited, the more I liked the idea of meeting Ronald Reagan, but he didn't call. The next morning, Mervyn took me aside to say that he'd had spoken to Ronald Reagan, who had told him that there were at least three other Nancy Davises in Hollywood. If there's ever a problem, Mervyn said, the Guild will defend you. Well, now that was reassuring, but it wasn't exactly what I wanted to hear. So I put on a very unhappy face. I'm really worried, I said. I'd feel a lot better if Mr. Reagan explained it to me himself. So late that afternoon, the phone rang. Nancy Davis, this is Ronald Reagan from the Screen Actors Guild. Mervyn Leroy asked me to look into your problem, and I have some answers for you. If you're free for dinner tonight, perhaps we could talk about it then. Well, I stammered, I think I could manage it. How about 7.30, he said. It can't be a late night because I have an early call in the morning. I smiled when he said that. Everyone in Hollywood who went out on a blind date knew enough to mention an early call. If the evening turned out to be a disaster, you had an excuse to end it early. Fine, I said. I have an early call, too. I didn't, but a girl has her pride. Two hours later, my first thought when I opened the door was, this is wonderful. He looks as good in person as he does on the screen. My visitor was propped up on a cane, and he explained that he had hurt himself in a charity baseball game and had just spent eight weeks in the hospital with a broken leg. We went to LaRue's, one of the best restaurants on Sunset Strip. In those days, the Strip was still the place to go and to be seen. By the time we sat down to dinner, we had finished discussing the Nancy Davis problem, and my date, who was more familiar than I with the mores of Hollywood, had come up with what he thought was the ideal solution. Have the studio change your name, he said. You'd hardly be the first. He had no way of knowing how long I had waited to be called Nancy Davis and how much that name meant to me. I can't do that, I told him. Nancy Davis is my name. I had known Ronald Reagan ten minutes when he suggested that I change my name. More than two years later, when we came back to this topic, I would be all too happy to change my name to his. As we were finishing dinner, he said that Sophie Tucker was opening a Ciro's that night, together with Xavier Cougat and his band, and suggested that we drive over there just for the first show. Fine, I said just for the first show. Of course, we stayed for both shows, and by the time Sophie Tucker had finished, we'd admitted that neither of us really had an early call. It was almost three in the morning when Ronnie brought me home. I don't know if it was exactly love at first sight, but it was pretty close. We'll hear the rest of the story right after this brief message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. 
Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now, back to the love story of Ronald and Nancy Reagan. Okay, sounds like the first date went pretty well. So, then what? Let's listen. We had dinner together the next night, and the night after that, and the one after that. For the first month or so, we must have gone to every restaurant and nightclub in Los Angeles. Almost as soon as we started dating, the press began to write about it and to speculate about our marriage. We realized early on that neither of us really was the fast lane type. And so instead of going out every night, we started spending most of our time alone in my apartment watching movies on television and making popcorn. Sometimes we'd spend the evening with Ronnie's close friends, Bill and Artis Holden, who lived in a charming Tudor house in the valley. Ronnie had been so deeply hurt by his divorce from Jane Wyman that it took a lot of time before he could even consider getting married again. Like most of his generation, he had been brought up to believe that you married once and that was it, for better or for worse. His divorce had come suddenly and he was totally unprepared for it. He also had nobody to confide in when it happened. Nobody he knew well had ever been separated from his children. He spent a week or so living with the Holdens, but he was really lost, and he missed the children terribly. I decided that he was getting serious when he invited me to come with him to his ranch. I eventually spent a number of Saturdays and Sundays there, which means that I painted a lot of fences. One Monday morning at the studio, the makeup man told me that I was the first actress he had ever worked with who had to have the paint removed before she could get her makeup on. He wanted to be with me all the time, but he still hesitated to make it official. The press continued to write about us. I felt the pressure and was more than ready to move things along. So with a little clever manipulation, she figured out a way to, yes, move things right along. And so, a few weeks after Christmas, 1951, I told Ronnie that I'd asked my agent to get me a play in New York. We announced our engagement on February 21st, 1952, and planned the wedding for early March. The columnist, Luella Parsons, wrote, The long-expected marriage of Nancy Davis and Ronald Reagan has now been set for early next month. We were thrilled, and so were our parents. We were married very simply on March 4th, 1952, at the little brown church in the valley. We didn't invite anybody, no press, no family, no fuss. Our only witnesses were Artis, who was the matron of honor, and Bill, our best man. After the ceremony, we went back to the Holdens for wedding cake and dinner. Bill had arranged for a photographer, and our wedding picture ran everywhere. They'd offered to have a reception for us, which in retrospect, I wish we had done. But again, Ronnie wanted to avoid publicity. For the wedding, Ronnie gave me a bouquet of flowers and I wore a gray wool suit with a white collar and a small flowered white hat with a veil. I still had my wedding suit, 
which turned up again in the fall of 1988 as I was unpacking boxes in our new house in Los Angeles. It didn't look bad either, and it still fit. I also have the wedding bouquet, and of course I saved the plastic bride and groom from the top of the cake. So let's ask the real expert on Ronald Reagan. You know, the woman who tolerated his brown suits, the woman he called a peewee powerhouse, and the woman who held his mother's Bible when he was inaugurated both as governor and as president. Let's listen. What is Ronald Reagan really like? Well, we've been married for almost 40 years, so I think that makes me an expert. The secret to Ronald Reagan is that there really is no secret. He's exactly the man he appears to be. The Ronald Reagan you see in public is the same Ronald Reagan I live with. There's a common assumption that because Ronnie used to be an actor, everything he does must be an act. It's not. Ronald Reagan is not a fraud or a phony. He is what he seems to be. And ever since I've known him, this cynicism about Ronnie's good nature has led people to underestimate him. If he worries, you'd never know it. If he's anxious, he keeps it to himself. Depressed, he doesn't know the meaning of the word. I've almost never heard him complain. If something is bothering Ronnie, he'll rarely mention it, and he never tells anyone, not even me, if he's not feeling well. It can be difficult to live with somebody who's so relentlessly upbeat. There have been times when his optimism made me angry or when I felt Ronnie wasn't being realistic, and I longed for him to show at least a little anxiety. And over the years, I think I've come to worry even more than I used to because Ronnie doesn't worry at all. I seem to do the worrying for both of us. My husband loved being president. He enjoyed it, all of it. The decision-making, the responsibilities, the negotiating, as well as the ceremonies, the public appearances, and the meetings. Ronnie has never been one of the boys. I've heard people say that a basic rule of American politics is to get along, go along. But Ronnie has never operated that way. One of the first things I noticed about him when we met is that when the day's shooting was over, he never stayed behind to have a drink with the fellas in the dressing room. He preferred to come home. Later on the campaign trail, he didn't sit around and chat with the staff. He'd smile, say goodnight, and come back to our room. But the most striking difference between Ronnie and many other politicians is that he's never been interested in power for its own sake. When friends would ask, how does it feel to be the most powerful man in the world, Ronnie would always say, who, me? It wasn't false modesty. He just didn't see himself in that way. Although Ronnie doesn't show his feelings easily, He's always been romantic. He used to send flowers to Mother on my birthday to thank her for giving birth to me. Ronnie doesn't wait until he's going away on a trip to be affectionate. He usually kisses me when he's only leaving the room. He says, I love you frequently, and so do I. We're physically affectionate with each other, both in public and in private, and we're always holding hands. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the Words to Live By podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of Words to Live By come out every Tuesday. Like what you hear? Check out our A Reagan Forum podcast featuring great speeches delivered at the Reagan Library. New episodes drop every Thursday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan 40 on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.